If you did a study on successful people of the world, you would find that they have a lot of similar characteristics. A lot of books have been written on the subject of what makes men and women great. Some of those common characteristics of all those people are things like they are very hardworking. Most of them work 70 hours a week or more. They have great perseverance. They don't quit when things get tough or they have a temporary setback. They're very focused and goal-oriented. All these traits are common in almost all successful men and women of the world. Of course, that's not our goal to be successful in the world's eyes. Our goal is to be successful men and women in the Lord's kingdom. And if you did a study on the common character traits of great men and women of the faith, what do you suppose one of those common characteristics would be? What are we studying? (laughs) One of the most common characteristics of all great men and women of the faith is that they understood the importance of and practiced the discipline of prayer. Let me read you a quote of just a few of them. Matthew Henry said, You may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. John Bunyan said, He who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. John Wesley said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. And John Wesley was a man who was known for spending two hours a day in prayer. Martin Luther said about that, he said, If I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours a day in prayer. Charles Spurgeon wrote, It is well said that neglected prayer is the birthplace of all evil. And as Pastor Steve would say, our friend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Prayer in many ways is the supreme expression of our faith in God. All of these men and many, many other great men of faith had one thing in common. They placed a very high priority and dependence on prayer. And it would serve us well to learn from them. But as I said several weeks ago, this is an area that I struggle with. And many of you admitted to struggling as well. And I want to do better. I desire to be more like these men. And I want to learn how to be a better man of prayer. So again, we're going to turn to Scripture to learn from the Master Himself in this area. Last week we began to study what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be. I call it the model prayer because as we saw last week, it's more of a guideline on how to pray. It can be prayed word for word, but I don't think that was the intent. It's more of a model, a framework in order to help us to pray. And as I told you last week, This prayer consists of only an opening address and six short petitions. It's basically a short paragraph. And in this paragraph, Jesus lays out a model of prayer that cannot be improved upon. I'm going to read the whole prayer from Matthew chapter 6, and then we'll pick up where we left off last time. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Last week we began looking at the opening address, our Father who is in heaven, and we looked at how we can use that address to model our prayers. We also looked at the first petition, and how would be your name. We saw that the first petition teaches us that we are to regard God's name as holy. We are to pray for God to make his name to be glorified in our lives and the lives of others. And then we discussed what that meant and how we could pray along these lines to make that a reality in our life. Again, the first three petitions center around God's glory. They're all three inseparably linked, and it's easy to see that. The first petition concerns God's glory itself. The second and third petition concerns the means whereby that glory is to be accomplished on earth. God's name is glorified here on earth in proportion in which his kingdom comes to us and his will is done by us. So the Lord first petitions us to pray for the hallowing of his name and then to pray for the means by which that is to happen. So the second petition, Matthew 6, verse 10, thy kingdom come is where we pick up this morning. It's the shortest of the petitions. Three words. Thy kingdom come. Only three words and yet it actually might be the most comprehensive and least understood. We begin by exploring the concept and meaning of the word kingdom. And then we'll begin to understand what it means to pray for it to come. What does the word kingdom mean? Literally. Somebody asks you what's what's kingdom mean? How would you answer that? Ruled by a king. If you look it up in the dictionary... It actually talks about, literally, in a purely linguistic way, it's saying, it defines kingdom as the territory associated with a particular king's authority or reign. The area of which he has rule over. In this context, then, God is king of what? The universe, everything. That's a true statement. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe then why are we instructed to pray, may your kingdom come? Isn't he already here? Isn't he king now? I naively thought I would put this lesson together in a few hours. (laughs) Boy, was I wrong. I started looking up scriptures on the kingdom of God, reading everything I could in the Bible about the kingdom of God. Do you know how many references there are in in the word to the kingdom? I didn't count them. I never even probably got to all of them, but there's a lot. It begins early on in the Old Testament, and it never quite quits. Throughout the Old Testament, leading up to the time of Christ and His teaching, and continuing on all the way through Revelations with prophetic future references about the coming Messianic kingdom. It would not be a stretch to say that this is one of the major themes of the Bible, one of the most important concepts for a Christian to understand. And when you go back and start beginning to read about the kingdom, early on in the life of the chosen people, the Jewish nation, God set Himself up as king he spoke his will to the people through old testament saints like abraham and moses he gave them the laws to follow he told them i am the lord your god and you shall have no other gods before me but there came a point in time in history when they were not satisfied with god as their king and what did they they want they wanted their own king they wanted a man an earthly king they rejected him as king in a sense They were warned that this wasn't a good idea, but they did it anyway. In the New Testament, Christ comes on the scene announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. Even before him, what was John the Baptist saying? The kingdom of God is near. 
No wonder the early believers were confused on this point. We sometimes give them a hard time thinking they weren't too bright or didn't get it. But when you put yourself in their place and in their time, it's not hard to see why they thought this way. They longed for a righteous king who would rule in power and justice and rid themselves of their oppressors. But the majority of the people, did they accept Christ as king when he came? No, they rejected him when he disclosed himself as the Messiah. Just like their ancestors in the Old Testament rejected God as their king. They delivered him up to stand before Pilate. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate about the kingdom? Turn over to John chapter 18. I want to read that conversation. John chapter 18, verse 33 through 36. In John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33... John tells us, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and he summoned Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered and said, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus plainly states here that his kingdom was not of this world. And as I thought about that, it reminded me that no society, however moral, can ever merge with God's kingdom. Not even partially. Sometimes we have or had in the past the thought that we were a Christian nation. We may have had a system built upon some Christian principles. We may have been more moral than other nations. We've obviously been blessed by God in many ways, but we are not, nor ever have we been, as a nation, part of the kingdom of God because His kingdom is not of this world. What were some of the great kingdoms of biblical times? Babylon, Egypt, Medo-Persia, Syria, Rome. What happened to all of those kingdoms? Do you remember the words of Daniel 5, 26 through 28? He was referencing the end of the Babylonian Empire, but he could have said it about every nation of the world. He said, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Earthly kingdoms always go the way of the flesh. Sin always causes decay and destruction, and it's no different today. There's only one kingdom which will last, God's kingdom. So what exactly are we praying when we pray, your kingdom come? The word used for kingdom is the Greek word basileia. It refers to sovereignty and dominion rather than geographical territory. So when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for people to submit to him as ruler and king. And I think there's a twofold aspect to this. Number one, I think there's a personal and present aspect. And two, a future worldwide aspect. On the present personal side, when we pray for the kingdom to come, we are praying for the Lord to reign in our own life. Look down a few verses in Matthew 6:33. Jesus tells his listeners to seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. 
This implies that the kingdom is here now. And God wants us to desire to allow him to reign in our lives now. We are praying for ourselves that we will have no other ruler but God. So there's countless times in our lives when our allegiance is torn, where we have to make decisions to follow Christ or to follow some other way. And a lot of times that other king vying for our allegiance is ourselves. We have to choose between living for Christ or living our own way. John Calvin said, It's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. It's the task of the church, us, to make the invisible kingdom visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our families, our communities, our jobs, our schools, our checkbooks. God should be king in every area of our life. The way the kingdom comes to earth is by making it manifest by the way we live as citizens of heaven. That's a personal present application. But there's also, no doubt, there's a future worldwide aspect to this prayer as well. Your kingdom come. The word for come in the original means a sudden, instantaneous coming. It's the same word used here as it is in Matthew 24:27, which reads, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the coming of his millennial kingdom. The kingdom is now, but it's also future. There's a spiritual kingdom that's been established and being built upon and growing, but there's also a fulfillment of its coming. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, in the last hours of his life, the kingdom was very much on the mind of Jesus. He's in the upper room with the disciples and these are some of his last words. And the kingdom is very much on his mind. He mentions it in verse 16, verse 18, verse 29, verse 30. But I want to read what he said in verse 15 and 16 right before he leads the disciples in partaking of the Passover meal. Look at Luke 22, verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What did Jesus mean when he said the Passover would be fulfilled in the kingdom of God? I thought the Passover was already fulfilled. What is the Passover? The Passover is the celebration of the time when God spared the firstborn sons of Israel as they were being delivered from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Remember them marking their doorposts with blood to spare them from the angel of death. It was a symbol of what was to come in Christ. Christ was called the Passover lamb. I thought the Passover was completed when Christ was crucified. But first verse 16 tells us that the Passover is not complete, that it will be fulfilled in the kingdom. Now turn over to Revelations 5. And we'll see why this is true. Revelations 5 verses 8 through 10. Revelations 5, beginning in verse 8, says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood 
men from every tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, did you get that? The Passover lamb was slain to ransom people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So the Passover cannot be fulfilled until all those people are reached and the ransomed are all gathered in. Then the kingdom is complete. So when we pray your kingdom come, it's an evangelistic prayer. We are praying for the gospel to go forward. We are praying for unreached people groups, the salvation of all God's elect. The kingdoms come in one sense, but in another sense, the kingdom will not come until every last child of God has come into the kingdom. So how do we apply these three words, your kingdom come, to our prayers? We can pray first that it come to our lives personally. That God will reign in every area of our life. That the influence of the world would grow weaker and weaker as we allow Christ to reign in us. We can and we should pray for forgiveness for our failures in these efforts. We can pray for the kingdom to prevail in the lives of our families, our neighbors, our communities, our cities, our state, our country. We should pray and mourn for the transgression of God's law in all aspects as we pray. And we pray Maranatha. What's Maranatha mean? Lord cometh. Come Lord Jesus. It's summed up well in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. As a side note, do you know that the Westminster Shorter Catechism was written by English and Scottish theologians to teach children the tenets of the faith? Sometimes I don't think we expect enough out of our children. On the question about the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, it says in the second petition, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed that the kingdom of grace may be advanced and ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. That's what it means to pray, thy kingdom come. So we've seen that the first petition, hallowed be thy name, is first and foremost a prayer of God's glory. The second petition, thy kingdom come, which is a longing after God's kingdom, naturally follows, as does the third, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we spend a lot of time here at Lakeside talking about the sovereignty of God, and rightfully so. But God, if God is sovereign, and He is, it might seem confusing to some that Jesus would have taught us to pray that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't the will of God always done? In one sense it is, but in studying the will of God in Scripture, we have to remind ourselves that there are several different meanings to the concept of the will of God. There's two very distinct meanings. Turn to Deuteronomy 29.29. 29. Has anybody had that one memorized? I see people shaking their head. It's, it's one everybody should have memorized. Deuteronomy 29.29 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So there's an aspect of God's will that's revealed to us and there's an aspect that is secret. The will that is secret is what theologians call the will of decree or other names that sometimes refer to as God's providential will, God's sovereign will, God's efficacious will. You know what the word efficacious means? I had to look that one up. It means it's capable of providing the desired effect. 
All these words denote that this will of God is always done. When God spoke to Lazarus and told him to rise from the dead and come out of the tomb, what happened? Lazarus rose from the dead and came out of the tomb. That's God's efficacious will. God's sovereign will. The things God decrees always happens. Ephesians 1.11 says, God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of His will. But that's not the only meaning of the word will in Scripture. There's also His revealed will. His sometimes called His perceptive will. Perceptive meaning having to do with His precepts, His laws, His commands. Some call it His moral will or His will of command. It is the will of God that you have no other gods before Him. That you honor your father and mother. That you don't lie. That you don't cheat. But does God make this happen? No. We are free to disobey or to obey. Whichever one we choose. But disobedience in that area of God's perceptive will will not alter God's decreative will. No matter what man does in disobedience, he can never change the outcome of God's providential will. For instance, it was not God's will that Joseph's brothers throw him into a pit and sell him as a slave. God's will for them was for them to love and respect him. But Genesis 50 verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So even Joseph didn't know what God was doing through all that happened to him. God's secret will was that he would end up in charge of the whole land, and through his providence, would save many people, including his whole family. So you can see there's two very different concepts of the will of God throughout the Bible. Some scholars even say there's a third will of God. I don't know exactly where I stand on this one, but it's what they would call the will of inclination. This will be the will of God in the sense of what pleases or displeases him. You know the verse in 2 Peter 3, nine that says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. This could not be a sovereign will, could it? Or no one would perish. Some people believe that actually means what it says, but that doesn't really line up with other scriptures, so we can't, that can't mean that. Some people say this doesn't fall into the will of command or moral will, because that would mean he is commanding them not to perish which wouldn't even be possible. So the reason that this will of God is referred to as God's disposition, that he's not pleased when someone perishes. He does not enjoy the reality that not all are saved. Others would just take the side that this is just a manifestation of the moral will of God, that he desires that all obey him, but many are not going to do that. And they would use scriptures like, I say to you, Lord, Lord, but I'm not going to enter the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of the Father who's in heaven. So if you don't obey, then you're not going to go to heaven. But God's not pleased by that. So you can see there are different meanings of the phrase will of God used in Scripture. So the question then is, what will is Jesus referring to here when he teaches us to pray God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Now it could be he's telling us to pray for his sovereign will or will of decree. If that's the will of God that we're to pray for, then at least we know one thing for sure. Our prayers are going to be answered. He could be just reminding us of his sovereignty, who he is and who we are and who his will is going to prevail and whose will is going to prevail in the end. But I don't think that's what he's saying. And I say that because there's a qualifier after the statement. 
It's not that we are to pray your will be done, but your will be done how? On earth as it is in heaven. That suggests there's a difference between God's will being accomplished on earth as compared to his will being done in heaven. We know that God's providential will is always done in heaven and on earth. So I think he's referring to God's perceptive moral will. God's moral will is always done in heaven by angels and the saints, the glorified saints. There is no sin in heaven. All who are in heaven are in full conformity with his laws. And so Jesus is confirming the truth that God's will is always done in heaven, but in contrast, it's not always done on earth. How is God's will done in heaven? It's perfectly. Never reluctantly, never hypocritically, not proudly, not tardily, not halfway, not grudgingly or sadly. It's the opposite. It's done completely, wholeheartedly, joyfully, humbly, fittingly. So the standard by which we measure our attempts to do God's will on earth is the way the angels and the saints do it in heaven. Think about why heaven is what it is. Heaven is what it is because of this fact. We long for heaven. Why? Because it's a place of no more sin, no pain, no tears. And the main reason for that is because everyone there does perfectly the will of God. On earth, God's name's not always hallowed. His will is not always done. So Jesus instructs us to pray, Thy will be done. This petition reflects a sincere desire to serve Him while on this earth. The glory of God is the great desire of every Christian. The coming of His kingdom is the chief means by which that happens. And obedience makes it manifest that his kingdom has in fact come to us. When God's kingdom comes personally to a person, by necessity he's brought into a desire to submit to God's laws and ordinances. Now there's always one scripture that comes to my mind when I hear these words about praying thy will be done. You know what it is? Jesus said those words, didn't he? Turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. You can't really do a discussion on this without bringing out this passage because our Lord actually prayed these words. In Luke 22, beginning in verse 39, it's the account of Jesus in praying in the garden. Beginning in verse 39, it says, And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began praying, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now it's important to note that Jesus wasn't saying, I don't want to be obedient. That wasn't his prayer. I don't want to submit. That wasn't his prayer. He was in essence saying, Father, if there's any other way, what you've set before me is so great I can hardly fathom to bear. I actually think Jesus was terrified. But if this is what you want me to do, not my will, but yours, 
be done. My will is to do your will. What happened right after Jesus prayed? An angel came and strengthened him, the Bible says. He got his answer, didn't he? God answered him by sending an angel to him to strengthen him for the task that lay before him. Something now that I didn't notice before is after the angel came to him to strengthen him, that's when it says his agony was increased in a sense. I would have thought that his agony would have been relieved after he got strengthened. But it says after the angel came that Scripture informs us that being in agony, he was praying very fervently and then his sweat became like drops of blood. In a sermon on this passage, Jonathan Edwards said that this increase in Jesus' agony was due to a full realization of the will of God for him and his passion. He had come to the garden with the fear that he would have to drink this cup. Once he knew for sure this was God's will for him, that he drink it, he had a new fear that he would not be able to do it. In other words, Jesus now was in agony that he might come short of completing it or not having perfect obedience to the will of God. But he did it. He drank the whole cup down to the very last drop. And he didn't just give us words to show us, but he gave his life as an example of praying that the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that should be our prayer as well. That we can say no matter how hard it is, no matter what lay in store for us, no matter what our desires may be, not my will, but yours be done. So in conclusion, these first three petitions are first and foremost all about what? God's glory. They are inseparably linked together. We are to pray for God's name to be made holy, for His kingdom to come, for His will to be done. Everything else we pray for is done in light of these priorities. These first petitions teach us what is important in our prayers, where the priorities should be. If this is in the forethought of our minds as we pray, our prayers will not be as selfish. Our prayers will be more in line with God's will. Do you remember the first prayers of your children when you first began praying with your little children? Anybody have vivid memories of how they might have prayed? I can remember one prayer of my kids that was very common, especially if we had something good planned for the next day. As we would lay down at night to pray, they would pray, Dear God, help us to have a fun day tomorrow. I think... You know, our prayers maybe aren't that selfish, but sometimes they're not much better. A lot of Christians spend most of their prayer time on self-centered petitions. And I think this model prayer the Lord gave us should challenge us to make Him and His glory, His kingdom, His will, a bigger and more important part of our prayer lives. After all, what's the What's the main purpose of a Christian? Glorify God, right? But it doesn't mean we're not to make petitions on our own behalf. If and when I get to teach again, we'll continue on into the second set of three petitions, which do instruct us 
how to pray for our needs. God does care about us and he gives us three that center on his glory and then three petitions that center on man's needs and that's where we'll go next. But for now, I hope that uh, the last few lessons have encouraged you to spend more time praying to the Lord and, and use this prayer as a model for our prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not just chosen us to be a part of your kingdom, but Father, you have given us instructions to how we can be an integral part of your kingdom. And you have given us your word that tells us how we are to act and what we are to do, even how to pray. You have not left us alone. May we be diligent students of your word. May we apply it to our lives humbly and accurately. And may we be more fitting, Father, examples of your kingdom. May we be more like Christ as we endeavor to be children of the King. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. As we enter into the worship hour, may you help clear our thoughts and our minds so that we may worship you in a way that does glorify your Son who gave everything for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.